Hello and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about health, politics, and policy. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Despite the world-beating amount of money that we spend on healthcare here in the U.S., our rate of maternal mortality is actually worse today somehow than it was 25 years ago. The U.S. now ranks 32nd out of the 35 wealthiest nations on maternal mortality, and the situation is especially dire for black women who are three to four times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes as white women. This is just one indicator of the stark challenges we have in this country on reproductive health, and I get into those challenges in the conversation we're featuring today with three experts in the field. While I was down at South by Southwest, I spoke with Chitra Achilles-Warren, who is co-founder of Clio, a venture-backed digital health platform that supports working parents to grow their families and their careers. She's also a board-certified obstetrician, gynecologist, and holds a lecturer appointment at Harvard. She also continues somehow to see patients as a hospitalist at a level one trauma center in Oakland, California. She's just the first of the three women we have here who, suffice it to say, that they're more credentialed than you, certainly more credentialed than me. Second, we have Rashmi Khadija, who is a board-certified reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, currently practicing at CCRM Houston. And finally, we have Pooja Mehta, who is assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at LSU Health Sciences Center. She's also the director of maternal and women's health policy at the new LSU Consortium for Health Transformation. They were at South by Southwest to present a session titled Hysteria No More, Data, Doctors, and Women's Health, in which they exposed the gaps in reproductive science and care delivery. In our conversation for the pod, we talk about topics including the elevated rates of maternal mortality here in the U.S., the economic and racial disparities in reproductive health, and why there are so many C-sections here in the U.S., and more fittingly, we had this conversation on International Women's Day. Let's get to the convo. All right, so welcome everybody. I remember with the birth of my first child going to uh, a class about what to expect and how to handle childbirth and what happens after that. And in the class, I looked across the room and there was a couple who I would guess were somewhere around 18 years old at least one of whom was non-white. And I remember thinking their experience has to be so vastly different than my own. And I wanted to ask you guys, zooming out for a second um, and considering the disparities uh, on an economic and racial basis when it comes to accessing reproductive healthcare, what does that look like? Is it as bad as I think it is? I guess I would say that the experience of reproductive care in this country, whether that's um, around contraception or around access to fertility services or access to preventive um, women's health care, cancer screenings, and then, of course, maternity care and postpartum vary drastically, um, not only by race, socioeconomic status, but also by geography um, and by health literacy and sort of access to the system in general. Um, I think even as obstetricians, gynecologists, our, our experience of care probably differs from our peers who are just as educated, um, just because of what we have access to and know and how we can shortcut the system. But, you know, those, those disparities in, in experience 
are perpetuated by long-standing systems, long histories where, um, and Puja can speak more to this, um, there have been legacies of um, racism and patriarchal structures that have been propagated by medicine that have actually resulted in unequal access and unequal care. Um, so when you look at, you know, state by state or um, community by community, there are fundamental differences in outcomes from maternal mortality to access to contraception to unintended pregnancy, even, you know, breastfeeding um, rates um, because of these these systems that are very, very longstanding. This is Pooja. I think there's a couple of different things in the anecdote that you just shared. I mean, in one sense, you're sharing the experience of being in a childbirth preparedness class, and there's going to be amazing, wonderful universalities to that experience as a parent-to-be. Um, and I, I think that we want that to be, to whatever degree that's possible, a universal experience. But we know that in the United States, historically, how this type of care has been funded is very patchwork. And so someone's access to that spectrum of services, all of the different services that Chitra has mentioned, depends very much on their income, their insurance type, where they live. Do they live in a rural area, in an urban area? Um, are they in a state with a Medicaid expansion? Are they not? Um, to what degree do they have access to Title X services, to Title V services? We, we just have inherited a system that is so patchwork that people's experiences are very variable. And then you layer on top of that our legacy in the United States of institutional racism in healthcare. And we know that people's experience of the same care, even if they are matched socioeconomically, even if they have the same type of insurance, may be different uh, once they're through the door. Their, their experience with a provider, with a system, getting seamless care, getting follow-up care may be very different. Well, I think also the additional thing I always think about, you know, having done part of my training in the Bronx and, and thinking about communities of color and sort of the stereotypic access to healthy food, to safe places to exercise, you know, we think about the typical advice I would give a young pregnant mother-to-be would really revolve around a healthy lifestyle, you know, and sort of thinking about what is the, and being aware of what is that access. And so, you know, one of the things I really started to get in the habit of asking was, do you have a safe place to exercise? You know, do you, can you go outside? Do you feel safe? And, you know, I think all of these things are big picture items that really trickle down to each pregnancy and each baby and each mom. Um, and so I totally agree that there are all these institutionalized forms of bias, but I think that our larger lack of social infrastructure and network in this country is a big part of that. You know, it shouldn't have to be worrying about, I'm worrying about teaching a mom how to be healthy as she thinks about pregnancy and fertility. I shouldn't have to then also think about something that I have no training in, which is where is she going to get that food? I'm not prepared to be able to help her with that. And that I think is a problem. I mean, so I totally agree that there are completely different experiences um, that women go through when they think about getting pregnant and then during their pregnancy. And I think different expectations culturally as well, based on communities and sort of communal expectations of dads to be, right? And so you know, what are the statistics on involvement of fathers and how can we do better um, to sort of help men be part of that process? Um, and I think there's a lot of history behind separation of families and all of these things in this country that I think we can do more to, um, to help undo those, those histories. You mentioned maternal mortality, and according to the CDC, there are 18 deaths per 100,000 mothers due to childbirth complications, which is much higher than other wealthy countries. For example, it's nine out of 100,000 in England, four out of 100,000 in Sweden. 
Why are American women dying from childbirth at this elevated rate? So I just want to clarify that there's a lot of different ways to measure maternal mortality, but based on however we cut the numbers, so whether we're looking at all deaths within a year um, of the end of a pregnancy, whether we're looking at deaths specifically thought to be related to pregnancy, we can tell that compared to other developed countries, the United States has a higher rate, and it seems to be climbing, which is especially concerning. Within those numbers, which are based on vital records, we know that there's a large amount of variation from state to state in the United States. So I live and work in Louisiana, and out of 48 reporting states, we are ranking number 47 right now. When we look at, at the state level, individual cases in a review setting where interdisciplinary group of experts from different fields look at these specific stories, I think that's where we get the best information possible about what actual causes of these deaths may be. We're seeing, first of all, that we're getting better at measuring deaths, that we haven't had a national system of collecting data on deaths, and so that's accounted for some of the rise. But even when we... How is that, how is that possible? Yeah, I mean... If anyone is listening to this podcast who wants to think about making, you know, maternal deaths mandatory reporting again, that that really is at this point in the crisis what we need. And what many public health experts, providers and community based advocates are calling for, we need consistent data. So we're not comparing apples to oranges from state to state and also different definitions of maternal death um, from certain years to other years. Uh, And I'm 100 percent in favor of that because sometimes we we just don't know, we can't track the same trends over time. Now, in addition to that, when we look at detailed uh, case reviews, we can see that there's an element of demographic trends in terms of who is going through childbirth. So we know that women in this country are becoming pregnant um, at older ages, that there's increased rates of uh, high blood pressure, uh, that there may be increased rates um, of of having a higher weight when someone gets pregnant. But we also see uh, that management of pregnancy uh, can be improved in this country. And so there's a lot of different potential causes, but we look at it kind of on a case-by-case basis. Across states, review committees are finding that as many as 50 or 60% of pregnancy-related deaths may actually be, be preventable through some intervention, either at the facility level or at the provider level or at a community level. And so we really are trying to focus our efforts on those 50 to 60% of deaths that we think are preventable, even though you know women may be coming into pregnancy with, with risks that they didn't have before. We feel like many of these things are things that the health system should be able to um, be able to address with system strengthening and quality improvement efforts and really focused attention and investment of resources. Yeah, so a really concrete example, a leading cause of pregnancy-related death right now in Louisiana is hemorrhage. So women having bleeding at the time of childbirth or following childbirth. Now, this is really troubling to us because we think of hemorrhage as being a a common cause of death in very developing settings. Many other states in the U.S. are not seeing these same rates of hemorrhage. So when we think about how to reduce the risk of someone actually dying from bleeding at the time of childbirth or following childbirth, there are things that can happen in a hospital that are proven to to help improve our ability to respond quickly. Now, part of the challenge here is that most childbirth is normal and safe, and we want all of our listeners to really remember that. Most childbirth is normal and safe. People shouldn't be scared to get pregnant um, if, if they have, you know, general good health and they're managing any medical issues that they have. But things can go wrong quickly. And so we are 
trying to implement best practices in hospitals where they're running simulations, they're running drills, they're running debriefs so that every team member is prepared in the case of an emergency and so that we are communicating clearly about things like how much blood someone has lost in childbirth. Are we measuring that blood loss? Are we adding it up? When a woman hits a certain level of risk, do we have an emergency plan in place for what medications she needs? Does she need to be in a different setting? Do we need to move her to a different part of the hospital or a different facility? Really anticipating a lot of those problems. And uh, when we think about, you know, well, why is that not already the case? Uh, we have to remember that maternity care can be some of the most underfunded, undersupported part of what a hospital and a community is, is doing. And this is um, typical across the country. It's typical across the world. Um, it's really a question of how much do we value women and childbirth and families, and can we take the time and invest the resources to really test changes and make sure that these changes stick over time and really improve the quality of care. I just want to um, say two additional things um, to what Pooja uh, added, two additional things. One is that the disparities in care have been longstanding. They're not new. Um, we are hearing about them now because of, you know, several trends. I think um, one that there has been this like a really strong um, threat of activism around raising the issue of maternal disparities and um, mortality, particularly in the black community in this country, um, that has just now coming to light. And part of it is also because it's impacting non-black women. Um, and so, of course, now we're paying attention. Um, so I think, you know, these these differences in care are not are not something that we're discovering for the first time in 2019. I mean, I think I studied these differences in college 20 years ago. And so, um, you know, it's just the fact that there is actually media attention and there's a consumer um, kind of swell in um, demand for better care and more um, information that, that is really driving this, which is fantastic. I think the second thing I'd say is, um, you know, there's this notion that maternity care is sort of a microcosm of a um, of a country's healthcare system. It, it sort of tells you it's a barometer for how good are the, the connections between preventive and primary care, which is where women should be starting when they're um, when they're when they're getting even before they're getting pregnant to uh, potentially some acute care that they experience during their pregnancy when they have unexpected issues come up to potentially a very high acuity maybe even emergency or surgical setting when they're having when they're giving birth to transitioning to the postpartum period which should be very communal communal and home based and where those connections break down um, in this country which i mean we've talked about the fact that care is extremely variable across all these settings that a single per, I mean, two different people that are living in the same exact geography um, may experience care differently in in women's health and the fact that um, you know we have this very fragmented payment system I think has led to the fact that we can't stitch together these settings and therefore we can't make it work for a single woman to actually follow that thread in a way that has any coherence. And part of that has been the fact that we medicalized childbirth last in the last century. So we brought childbirth out of this sort of communal birth attendant midwifery led um, event um, that ha does have a normal component to it, can have risks associated with it, but mostly is normal and healthy to this very highly medicalized um, obstetrician led medical event. And, and I think in that way, you know, we've taken it out of this sort of let's um, as a society actually figure out how do we transition women from one setting to another um, in a coherent way to um, you have your one doctor who you see, and that person may or not may not be equipped to actually help you navigate all those different settings. So if you need to move quickly from a birth center that's located in a 
um, rural area to a tertiary care center in a city, um, who's going to assist you to do that? And I don't think we're doing those, making those transitions quickly for women, which leads to delays in care and ultimately unfortunate deaths. The other thing that we're learning from our case reviews is that a lot of maternal mortality is really happening after childbirth in this postpartum period. And what we're learning as we study individual cases is that a lot of the attention, both medical attention and social support, that people get really disappears in that postpartum period. And this is especially true in places where um, somebody may lose their insurance coverage or access to a healthcare system um, after they give birth, or maybe because they've gone back to work, they're taking care of other children. Um, there's a lot of factors there that may lead to problems going unaddressed in that postpartum period. And one major difference between the United States and a lot of other developed countries that we're looking at because they have better maternal mortality rates than we do is this idea of that postpartum safety net. Do we have paid parental leave policies? Uh, do we have uh, universal coverage in that postpartum period so someone knows exactly who they can call or go to with a medical issue? We've had you know, meetings with uh, people in the UK and in Canada where postpartum home visits are a guaranteed part of their medical service. And, and the purpose of those home visits isn't to be, you know, stigmatizing or invasive or um, to, you know, criminalize mothers who are in particular situations, but to really assess um, for what needs they may have when and during this time where it's just really hard to get out of the home and and to advocate for yourself. So I think these are some uh, real focus areas for us as we move forward um, of course, partnering with impacted communities so that we know that we're designing solutions that, that work for the communities that are more effect, most affected. You mentioned the medicalization of childbirth. And in this country, we have relatively high rates of C-section procedures. Why is that? Um, when you put surgeons in charge of childbirth, you're going to get a lot of surgery. <laughs> so there is an interesting history. I mean, that's a sort of a funny way of saying this, but our history of childbirth in this country, as I mentioned, evol has evolved differently from those of our peer countries. You know, we used to, we also used to be a community-based midwifery-led birthing endeavor, um, similar to, you know, what you'd see in the UK or the Netherlands or Australia, um, other countries like ours um, that have the same sort of economic demographics. Um, and those countries have continued to have midwives at the helm of childbirth, which there's no panacea there. It's not there's no, nothing particularly um, magic about what what midwives do. We all have worked alongside midwives and tremendously respect the profession. But it's that there's an orientation that most birth is going to be normal and that it's a holistic event that is not just a medical event about reducing risks, but it's actually about promoting a normal physiologic process. And when we are trained as obstetricians to look for every single thing that goes wrong, and the, our risk tolerance is, is quite low, um, and our only <laughs> tool is a scalpel, you're going to see C-sections. That's not to say that some C-sections aren't warranted. There's always going to be women that need to give birth by a C-section. And that's something that we should celebrate as an amazing medical intervention that saves lives. But um, we are also using C-sections in a way to reduce our own fears around childbirth as providers when we're seeing things go slightly off track um, and we don't have the patience in our systems to really um, handle that. And the only thing I would add to that is that I think in this country, part of the narrative around what constitutes a good birth has really shifted. And I think it's, it's meant to be as a response to this over-medicalization of childbirth, but I think that the unintended consequence of that has become... There's a lot of pressure on women 
that perceive themselves to be healthy and, and want this ideal birth to have this unmedicated vaginal delivery, which many women can have, but not every woman can have. And so I think it sets up this conflict inherently when they come into the delivery room where their physician wants at the end of the day to have a healthy baby and a healthy mom. And potentially many women feel a lot of pressure to be able to turn around after the delivery and report back to social media, their friends, whatever the case may be, that they had this stereotypically perfect experience. And I think, you know, we lose track of just as Chitra said, you know, cesarean suction is something that saves many lives. And there are women in other parts of the world that are literally dying and their babies are dying because they don't have access to a surgical delivery. And so I think that it's an important balance. I think we have to remember that although most births can be completely healthy, sometimes things do go wrong. And unfortunately, we never have a crystal ball to know who that person is going to be. And so I think having a system that has the infrastructure to, as was already said, you know, transition people properly and safely through, you know, different phases of their pregnancy and, and delivery is where we're really caught up in this country. Um, and certainly, you know, the the medical legal landscape deserves to be mentioned as well. I mean, as obstetricians, I, I don't believe that any of my obstetric colleagues are are necessarily trying to impose these cesareans on women, but there is a legitimate concern in this country over being sued over something that's perceived as preventable. And some childbirth injuries could be preventable, potentially, but it's a very difficult thing to argue in a U.S.-based justice system where you're going to show up, the plaintiff is going to show up with a sick child in front of a jury, and it's very sympathetic, and doctors feel very scared about this. Fear motivates a lot of action. And so it's very sad that in something that should be very joyous, I think there's a lot of fear on the part of both women um, and on the part of the physician, and, and that's really sad that that has kind of permeated the whole experience. I'll just add a few thoughts, but when we look at C-section rates uh, by state or by hospital, we do see a lot of variation. And so when we see that variation, we have to be critical or, you know, be thoughtful about where that variation is coming from. We know that there is some uh, range of a C-section rate that represents um, a system having good infrastructure with uh, strong services in place to protect the health of the mom and the baby. And we know that when we see really wide variations, so a, a hospital that may have a 40% you know, low-risk cesarean rate or 35% low-risk cesarean rate, that, that some degree of that represents the culture of the institution, um, a management style, um, and, you know, it's not necessarily providers having bad intentions, but we are all actors within systems around us. And so when we think about trying to reduce that cesarean rate to avoid unnecessary intervention, it's really about thinking about fostering a different culture, a culture that um, allows for uh, algorithms, conversations, trust building with patients, communications between families and providers about um, an individual kind of process that's happening um, that allows for that decision-making to happen in a shared way when possible, except, of course, in the cases of true emergencies, but really counseling our patients and partnering with our patients so that it's understood that those emergencies can happen and in what scenarios will that be and having that conversation ahead of time. How do you think the issue of abortion relates to this issue of chronic underinvestments in reproductive health? I mean, I, I get the impression then that when certain people think uh, about Planned Parenthood, they think, oh, those are abortion factories. That's what they do there. Versus, you know, the 
total range of health services offered at places like that. Is there anything to that? Do you think that the debate over abortion is obscuring the broader need for greater investment in reproductive health? So I totally agree with that assessment. Um, and, and I will say to me, um, it starts with sexual education in this country and contraception, right? So these are ostensibly slightly less controversial, or they should be potentially, than pregnancy termination. But um, even those are controversial in this country. We can't agree that teenagers and young people deserve comprehensive information about their bodies um, to be able to prevent pregnancy and achieve pregnancy at the time that they want to. So to me, it comes as a little surprise that down the road, we are then very puritanical about pregnancy termination, about who deserves access to fertility care. Um, all of these issues to me come out of the same thing, which is that in this country, we're very squeamish about talking about sexuality really outside of the context of a married heterosexual couple. And so, you know, when we compare that, for example, to a number of European countries, they're much more open about the fact that adolescents often have sex. And that's something that parents are encouraged to talk to their children about. And it's not, um, it's a completely different society. And I think when we are realistic about what young people are doing uh, and are willing to talk about it and teach them how to be safe, then we can build this culture where they feel safe in the healthcare system. They can come approach us for, to be able to talk about contraception, abortion, whatever the case may be. So certainly there's just a lot of willful misunderstanding, I think, of the realities based on people's uh, religious or moral views. And to your point about Planned Parenthood, of course, I mean, clearly there are individuals that are very vested in denying the reality of what care is provided at that kind of healthcare center. Um, and they just refuse to see the facts. I guess the way I'm trying to think about this issue of abortion and how it relates to broader reproductive care, and I'll speak from the perspective of a provider, but also as a perspective of, from the perspective of a woman um, who's experiencing my reproductive life cycle myself, there's not a separation in my mind between the conversations around whether I want to be pregnant or, or not, whether I want to use contraception or not, whether I'm ready to actually become pregnant, whether that pregnancy makes sense for me at the time, whether there is um, something that is unfortunately unhealthy about the pregnancy that makes it either dangerous for me or makes it something that I cannot support. That to me, it's it's a life cycle. I mean, abortion is just one of the choices and one of the events that might, might happen as part of that. And the fact that it's separated as this other thing that certain women experience and certain places are providing as a service, the fact that it gets called out at Planned Parenthood as a primary service when in fact Planned Parenthood does provide the entire cycle of reproductive care because that is how women experience care, you know, I think is really unfortunate um, and obviously has become over-politicized and in many ways is um, detracting from the larger conversation, which is around how can we empower women to make the right choices for them about their um, reproductive life cycle, about their bodies at the right time? Um, and that's kind of what it comes down to. And the fact that one in four to one in three women are going to have an abortion in their lifetimes, I think to me speaks to the fact that like, it's not a particular demographic. It's not a particular type of person that's going to access that. It's not even a particular persuasion. I mean, we have women across the um, religious spectrum, political spectrum that want to and have to and need to access abortion um, care. And they also may need to access contraception and they also may need to access pregnancy care. So they probably will over the course of their lifetime. So it's, it's unfortunate that it's been singled out as an issue when it's actually very tied together to all the other types of services that women have to access.
particularly just to add when about half of pregnancies in this country are unplanned. So when you think about that, you know, it really makes sense. I, and I totally agree that it's all part of one continuum. And so that's why, to me, it really is all tied in together that if we can't talk about contraception, then, of course, we're going to have all these unplanned pregnancies. And, of course, for many of those women and their families, it's not going to be the right time to have another pregnancy, whether it's because of socioeconomic reasons, whether it's because of health reasons. I mean, having back-to-back -back pregnancies is medically un not recommended. It can be potentially unsafe. Um, so there are a lot of reasons, I think, that really contribute to that and tie honestly, the whole spectrum of reproductive health together. So when I think through your question, what I'm hearing in your question is, you know, have has the abortion debate in our country displaced a larger conversation about women's lives and women's health? And I think when I respond to that, I find it very helpful to think about the reproductive justice framework, which is um, a framework that really comes out of the lived experiences of of black women and birthing people. And it asserts that, you know, people have the right to give birth when they want to, to not give birth when they don't want to, and to parent the children that they want to in a society um, where they have what they need. And I think you're right that we are not having that bigger conversation about the conditions of our lives, like the social conditions of our lives that also allow for good health, the education um, and the investment in young people's lives that leads to good health, and then a full spectrum of access to health care. And that, that full spectrum care that someone may need to access includes abortion, but it also includes a lot of other services. And that's what the conversation should be about, is that whole context. I think we are seeing some of the debate around abortion be mobilized for political purposes. And I think, you know, advocates who, advocates for, for children, advocates for women, uh, really need to keep our eyes on the prize. We're looking at access to education, to um, the ability to work, the ability to live in safe communities, the ability to parent, and and feel that we're able to do that on our own terms. I get the sense that within healthcare, reproductive healthcare, even though aside from perhaps end of life care, it is the only phase at which everybody experiences it by definition. Yet, is perhaps the the phase at which there is the least amount of understanding. What do you think? I think that's a really good point. Um, yes, I would say that there is growing self-awareness and bodily awareness amongst women in this country and increasing demand for information about our bodies. I also think that technology has facilitated a lot of that. So has just more openness about um, and destigmatization of issues from having irregular periods to conditions like endometriosis and pelvic pain syndromes to postpartum depression and the changes mentally and um, socially that women experience as part of the reproductive changes that they're going through. There's just there's a lot more um, conversation in the media and amongst even people of celebrity status that are bringing these issues to attention, which is great. Um, we still have a long way to go. I mean, I think all of us can attest to the fact that when we actually see our patients, whether they are highly educated or didn't have access to um, education and or come from um, communities where English may not be their primary language, et cetera, there is a prof profound asymmetry of information between what we as providers know and what our patients know. And that I think in part comes from um, a society that um, doesn't necessarily value sexual education and really uh, empowering women to feel good about their bodies in many ways. Um, but also um, there hasn't been um, real context, I think, to have this conversation. And in some ways we're becoming even more disconnected from 
these sources of support and information that we once maybe had access to. So intergenerational conversations that used to happen between grandmothers and mothers and their daughters when we all lived in the same place and birthed um, in the same place. We don't do that anymore. Um, and so where are these conversations happening now? And the good thing is that they are happening online. I do think that there is more um, opportunity to even have more honest conversations because there's an anonymity to what happens online. But is that really informed? Is that really being moderated correctly? Is there a propagation of misinformation as a result of that? But in general, I'm optimistic that in like the education around reproductive care is increasing and that women want access to information about their bodies. It's just a matter of how we disseminate that and how we make sure it's accurate. And I, I think it's very interesting, too, because so for so much of what I do as a fertility specialist is related around fertility literacy, but this applies to every aspect of reproductive health. But there are a lot of studies to show that across developed countries and including in the U.S., that across educational spectra, et cetera, that there are relatively low levels of fertility knowledge. So, you know, we sort of get this idea as young people that, you know, it's really easy to get pregnant. But that's not always correct. And there is a lot of misunderstanding about the realities of of pregnancy. And even more concerning, I think, is that there is research to show that even gynecologists have gaps in their knowledge about fertility because it's not necessarily considered part and parcel of what maybe the training is. You know, fertility training as part of OBGYN residency is actually a part that is often kind of sequestered, is not uniform across the country. And so there are actually a lot of gynecologists that don't get very dedicated fertility training. And a lot about fertility treatment has changed over the past years and decades. And so, you know, if somebody did their training 20 years ago, the success rates and options for fertility treatment have changed drastically. And so people are just not, so that's just one micro example to say that if you're coming, let's say you're even on top of everything, you're seeing your gynecologist regularly, again, published data to show that there are gaps in knowledge and there's also a lot of discomfort to bring up the topic if you yourself as the patient don't raise it. And so... Am I then at all surprised when, you know, patients show up in my office completely uh, poorly informed and with low health literacy, as you said, uh, about reproduction? No, of course not. And it's not entirely their fault because we didn't really emphasize the need for that in our healthcare system. And so I think there are a lot of places where we can improve. Okay, so you are here in Austin at South by Southwest. We're doing this. This is our first outdoor interview, Odd Wooden Teeth. And you have a session later. Uh, in which you'll be talking about the gaps in reproductive science and health. I know we've talked about a lot of them here already, but what are perhaps the most surprising gaps, you think? I guess I'll start by saying that there used to be this joke in medical school that OBGYN care is a data-free zone. <laughs> um, a lot of the decisions that we make around um, care in pregnancy and birth um, in particular don't have a ton of data to support it. And actually, there, um, I would say that that's partially untrue. We do have actually quite a bit of data and we're not using it effectively, but also that pregnant women were often excluded from research um, and historically have been because of their quote unquote disabled or vulnerable status, similar to children or elderly or people with chronic illness. And that has recently changed. Um, there's actually rules and maybe legislation that has changed the fact that um, women that are pregnant can and should be involved um, with clinical trials and research in ways as, ways that they haven't been um, historically able to do. So what we know about pregnant women is very limited. Um, on the gynecologic side, I think similar um, lack of attention to research for how to advance um, gynecologic care have, have been noted. For example, um, 
one issue that comes up quite a bit is around just contraception options and how little contraception has advanced in its technology, despite the fact that it's such a ubiquitous um, tool for, for, for many women. I mean, at some point, most women are going to engage with some form of contraception, and yet the side effect profiles, the ways in which you have to administer it, they're burdensome, they're cumbersome, and they're not uh, very women-friendly at all. Um, and yet, you know, recently there was a trial of a male contraceptive pill that stopped early because there was concern about the impacts on men, males, male mood and depression, which is something that many women that are on hormonal contraception experience. So there's sort of this double standard as far as what women should have to endure um, and the fact that we just have underinvested in um, areas that impact pretty much all women <laughs> um, throughout their care and um, throughout their lives. And so, I mean, there are so many other areas that are that are lacking, but those are two that I can point to. I think one of the things that we we speak to in the panel is that OBGYN is an unusual medical specialty, and we are all physicians, and very specifically speaking from the perspective of being physicians. But a lot of the work of what OBGYNs do has historically been done by um, different types of providers, by midwives um, in other countries, you know, by empowered lay people, champions. And I think one of um, the most exciting frontiers in our work is thinking about how to uh, restore some of the work that we do to um, less specialized spaces? How do we work with midwives? How do we work with doulas? How do we work with community health workers? Um, so much of what we feel as OBGYNs that we cannot address is because of the confines of what can happen in a medical visit um, or in a clinical space. But so much of what impacts um, a woman or a transgender man's ability or a gender nonconforming person's ability to achieve their reproductive goals um, to address their, you know, obstetric or gynecologic needs actually is determined outside of those, you know, exam rooms and outside of those clinical spaces. So how do we kind of democratize our care once again, perhaps challenge this uh, physician power dynamic that has developed, you know, in the last you know, 100 years or so of our history. We have an OBGYN workforce now that um, for the first time looks more like the patient populations that OBGYNs serve. And I think that's a real opportunity to think about, you know, opening up some of the challenges that our profession is facing to some really creative solutions from tech to, you know, community-based partnerships and support um, to moving out of a traditional hospital setting to other settings. The last thing I'll add is just because this is South by and Austin, you know, I think there's a lot of potentially false or, or exaggerated hope placed on tech solutions, right? And so there's this entire burgeoning femtech industry, right? Is all of these, I see all these glowing articles about this startup or that startup. And, you know, there are a lot of promising ideas. And I think that the core concept of helping democratize and improve access to information and helping women feel empowered to ask questions about their reproduction is absolutely one that I stand behind. But there are a lot of for-profit companies that are selling tests and selling products that have no data behind them. Um, and in some cases actually have data that refute the utility of that very blood test. And so I think, you know, to me, um, I, I think it's about how do we responsibly deploy what we can do in this day and age uh, and help people really decipher, you know, what's useful and what's still ex experimental. Um, and so to me, that is a gap. You know, we have the ability to have cool apps and to have 
you know, variety of different things um, via the internet, but not all of them are are data proven. And and that's something I I definitely uh, think we have to all approach with caution. Chitra, Rashmi, and Pooja, happy International Women's Day, and thank you. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks to Chitra, Rashmi, and Pooja. It was a great conversation. I hope you agree. If you do, please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next week.